Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. A little bit of an overview that we're going to look at. We're not going to take a long time on the first uh, couple of pages of this, but just some background to Hebrews as we get into it and look at it. I am hoping, Lord willing, that we'll get through the first three verses of Hebrews tonight, chapter 1, which is really, in a large way, I would submit to you part of the, the introduction, if you will, to the book. <clears throat> now, who wrote Hebrews? That's the uh, $64,000 question. Scholars say that the author of Hebrews, and by the way, uh, on the back of this page, uh, a number of these uh, items that I have here, especially from who wrote Hebrews, to whom was Hebrews written, why was Hebrews written, uh, except for a few quoted sections from other sources, are from the Emmaus Journal, Volume 9, Summer of 2000, A Structural Synthesis of the Book of Hebrews, by uh, James A. Townsend. So, anyway. Um, scholars say that the author of Hebrews <coughs> is much like the mysterious figure of Melchizedek in its pages. Though the, though the older King James Version editions contain the heading, quote, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. That's probably the, um, the most um, prominent person mentioned as the writer of this book, the book of Hebrews. Uh, again, the older King James Version editions had in the heading um, the epistle of Paul of the apostle of Paul the apostle to the Hebrews. I have the King James. It's it's a later one. It's not one of the earlier ones, and um, I am certain uh, it just says Hebrews. Well, <coughs> um, let me see. Where do I? Though the older. Uh, uh, a few conservative Bible scholars hold that Paul could have written Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.3, the author places himself under the same umbrella as his readers when he says, confirmed to us. So us would be inclusive of the writer of Hebrews. Um, and that would be Paul if he is actually the author of the book of Hebrews. We're talking about the human author now. Uh, of Hebrew, <clears throat> but um, as belonging to a group who uh, received its initial view of Christianity 
from those who heard Christ personally, namely from the apostles. Look at Hebrews 2. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us, so that would be uh, the writer of Hebrews, including himself in this, uh, by them that heard him. Well, those who heard him, those who heard the Lord, would have been the apostles who confirmed it unto us, the writer of Hebrews included here. Um, going on uh, in the reading of, of this page now, of, of this paragraph, uh, let me see. By contrast, the Apostle Paul, and this is where it all ties together, bends over backwards to assure all his audience that he never borrowed his Christian message from the original apostles. Look at Galatians. And we're probably not going to look at all the verses here, but some of these would be helpful. Uh, look at Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 12. For I neither received it, Paul's the author of Galatians, the human author of Galatians, for I ne neither received it of man, Neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then you go down to verses 15 through 17. But when it pleased God, who, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. So he didn't go talk to the apostles. God gave him the revelation. The writer of Hebrews says this was given to him, us, by those who heard the Lord. Those who heard the Lord again? Apostles. So Paul says, I didn't get what I got from the apostles. I ultimately got it from God himself. He inspired me to write the books that I did. So this data would seem to rule out Paul's authorship of Hebrews. Certain other authorial candidates might seem to be a hand-in-glove fit, meaning they might work. Barnabas, a Levite from outside of the land, Acts 4.36, might well be a son of encouragement, Acts 4.36, uh, supplying a message of encouragement um, Supplying a message of encouragement, Hebrews 13, 22. Apollos was an eloquent Jew versed in Old Testament scriptures, Acts 18, 24. And a lot of people think because of all of the, uh, the Old Testament background and the customs and uh, about the priesthood and the Levitical uh, laws and uh, all of that stuff that we'll find in the book of Hebrews that Apollos is a prime candidate because he was well-versed in uh, Mosaism. We shouldn't call it Judaism. Uh, Judaism is the religion of the rabbis, Mosaism, that type of thing. So he was an eloquent Jew, versed in Old Testament scripture, <coughs> who found he needed to move forward in his supplementary understanding of who Christ was, Acts 18, 25 through 28. Even Priscilla, uh, 
if one is willing to ignore the masculine participles in Hebrews, um, makes a viable candidate for Hebrews authorship. Well, we're not going to ignore the masculine particle participles uh, in Hebrews, but he says uh, she would be a possible candidate, Priscilla, uh, um, as one who engaged in the very pro process with Apollos of bringing someone progressively along to a fuller view of Christ, Acts 18.26. In the final analysis, one pretty much has to conclude with the, the early church leader Origen, who stated, quote, who wrote the book of Hebrews? God alone knows the truth of the matter. And humanly speaking, we, we, nobody can nail it down. Um, I've heard arguments on this from all sides and all possibilities. I land where Origen is, or where he was. You just don't know. Uh, we just don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. God alone knows the truth of the matter. And the author of the book, obviously, who's, I'm sure, in heaven at this point. So, so we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, humanly speaking. It, it is inspired. It is God-breathed. It's part of the Word of God. Uh, but humanly speaking, we don't know. Now, to whom was Hebrews written? And this gets very important as we go through Hebrews <coughs> and uh, consider a number of things in the book. In Hebrews 10, 32 through 34, the original readers were traumatized by trials. They were persecutees. However, according to Hebrews 12, 4, no martyrs could be numbered on their roster. The early Greek manuscripts tell us that the target audience were Hebrews, that is, Jews. And the extensive citations from our Old Testament in the book reinforce this conviction. Richard Longnecker counted 38 citations from the Old Testament in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So this at least, according to Longnecker, 38 citations in these uh, chapters in Hebrews, and, and there are not a lot of chapters. There's, what, 13 chapters, uh, I believe it is, in, in Hebrews. Um, so you have then, what, 38, he says, minimum then? That would be roughly three citations in every chapter. Well, uh, in chapter one alone, I don't know how many off top of my head we're going to have, but we have probably six or eight citations in chapter 1 alone of the Old Testament. So there's, there's, there's plenty of citations. Now, he go, it goes on. One of the principal clues for our Sherlock Holmes is like the mythical head of Janus, which faces two directions. It can be interpreted in two opposite ways. Hebrews 13, 24 refers to those from Italy sending greetings to the book's readership. So people were in Italy sending greetings to the readership. <coughs> in Acts 18.2, it is clear that those, quote, from Italy <coughs> are people who are from Rome, but that time were away from Rome. They are like friends, quote, from Illinois on vacation in Florida, we're sending back a postcard to those they know in Illinois. From Italy, communicating back, but they're just away from their home where they live. Therefore, 
it seems reasonable to conclude that the readers of Hebrew, Hebrews were Jewish believers in Jesus or Christ living in or near Rome who were feeling the aftershock of persecution quakes. If this scenario is the case, then the date must be set prior to Nero's Christian killing pogrom of A.D. 64. So the book then was written to Jewish people. It was written prior to 64 A.D. Everybody is convinced it was written before 70 A.D. That's when the temple was destroyed. But more than likely prior to 64 A.D. <clears throat> now, Kenneth S. Wiest in his Hebrews in the Greek New Testament said this. We will need to remind ourselves again of the historical background and analysis of the book and the purpose of the author in writing. He was writing to the visible, professing church made up of saved and unsaved. There is no greeting to the saints that we find in most of the epistles. The concern of the writer is with those of his unsaved Jewish readers, that's why it's called Hebrews, the book to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people. There is no greeting to the saints like we find most epistles. The concern of the writers with those of his unsaved Jewish readers who under stress of persecution were in danger of renouncing their professed faith in Messiah and returning to the abrogated, done away with, sacrifices of the first testament the mosaic testament the mosaic covenant these he repeatedly warns against this act of going back and repeatedly exhorts to go on to faith in the new testament sacrifice messiah john macarthur put it this way first of all there was in this jewish community a congregation of true believers in the lord jesus christ in the group of Hebrews to whom this epistle was written, there were such non-Christians, these Hebrew non-Christians, intellectually convinced, but spiritually uncommitted are the Christians. These Hebrew non-Christians, intellectually convinced, but spiritually, I missed that, but spiritually uncommitted, are the object of some of the things that the writer has to say. Not only does the Holy Spirit in this book speak to Christians in order to strengthen their faith and to the intellectually convinced in order to push them over the line to saving faith, but he also speaks to those who have not believed at all, to those who may not yet be convinced of any part of the gospel. He speaks to show them clearly that Jesus is in fact who he claimed to be. So the book is written to the Jewish people, but there are two primary groups in focus here. Number one is believing Jews, to go on in their faith. But number two, to unbelieving Jews who are making professions of belief or faith in Jesus, but don't really believe. He's encouraging them. Those are in danger of 
going back to Mosaism to encourage them to go come on to true faith. Oftentimes, uh, the terms used to uh, speak of the two groups of people, you have possessing believers. Possessing believers are those that do possess the Lord, possess the Holy Spirit, uh, are truly saved. And then you have professing believers. Both will give lip service to Jesus being the Messiah and the Savior, but only one truly possesses the Lord and has salvation. The other is just a professor and doesn't have salvation. So those are the primary groups that are in focus. Now, on the back of the, of the sheet, who was Hebrew? why was Hebrews written? And, and we'll build on this again. If the portrait we have painted is correct, then these Jewish readers may have been wondering, isn't it better if we go back to just being garden variety Jews rather than Jews for Jesus? Emphatically, no. Spout the author of Hebrews. You, the readers, must not drift away, Hebrews 2.1, or shrink back, Hebrews 10.38. For renouncing Jesus would be tantamount to turning away from the living God, Hebrews 3.12. Don't go back. Go on to maturity, chapter 6, verse 1. The principal point of Hebrews is encapsulated in two book titles. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and C.S. Lewis's The Pilgrim's Regress. Not regress, but progress is what it's all about. Not back to apostasy, but onto maturity. Now, to stimulate the readers to forward march, <clears throat> the author shoots up a series of warning flares. Chapter 2, 1 through 4, 3, 7 through 19, 5, 11 through 6, 12, 10, 19 through 39, and chapter 12, 14 through 29. Those are warnings. And we're going to look at the warning passages. I, I mentioned them down below, but we're not going to look at them tonight uh, as we ultimately come to them. Now, it's not better to regress to Judaism or even back in the first century, Mosaism which would be best understood, <clears throat> although even back then there was that admixture of uh, rabbinism and mosaism. Yes, they had the temple standing, they had the worship system, they had the priests and so on, but you also had the rabbis. So it's better not to go back or regress to Judaism or mosaism. Christ and everything about him is better. And some have said that really the key word, if you're looking for a key word in, in, in this book, would be better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is uh, better than uh, the Yom Kippur sacrifice. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Um, that would probably be the key word in, in this entire book. Um, and here you have, in the King James Version anyway, you can see later, 1, 4, 6, 9, 7, 19, and 22, and so on. Better. The book of Hebrews doesn't easily align itself with political correctness. We wouldn't teach it if it did. It wouldn't be in this Bible if it did. 
um, doesn't align with political correctness, or most classes in comparative religions. For it asserts that God's Son is superior to all else in the spiritual sphere. Yes, he's more, he's superior to angels, he's superior to Moses, he's superior to Buddha, he's superior to Allah, he's superior to Muhammad. Uh, there's no political correctness in this book, is what it's saying. Now, we may coin a term for what Hebrews is, and this comes from, uh, again, not me, this is James Townsend, it's a homiletter is what he says, uh, a letter, meaning a hybrid that's part letter, you can look at 1322 later, and partly sermon. Since a word of exhortation in Hebrews 13.22 is seen to be a sermon in Acts 13.15, where the same essential expression is employed in Greek. The unique focus of Hebrews, spotlight, of Hebrews spotlights Christ's high priesthood. In fact, with the exception of Romans 8.34, only Hebrews explains Christ's present priestly ministry. And for no other reason uh, than that, this book is vitally important. We all know about Jesus' first coming. We've got four Gospels on the life of Jesus and what happened. We know a whole bunch about his second coming. We got it in the book of Revelation. We've got it in Zechariah and Isaiah and Zephaniah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and, and 2 Thessalonians and uh, Matthew 24. You know, we've got all kinds of texts on the second coming. But, but what do we know about Jesus between his first coming and going back to heaven and his second coming and coming back to earth in the rapture prior to the tribulation period? Well, if we didn't have the book of Hebrews, we really wouldn't have basically anything telling us what he's doing today. That's what Hebrews does as well. What is Jesus doing now, at this time, presently, while he's in heaven? So that alone makes it a very important uh, book. Now, um, it's a primer for Jewish evangelism. <coughs> when we uh, start in Hebrews, look at Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to look again, Lord willing, shortly at the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. We start, and it says in verse 1, God who at sundry times and in divers or different ways spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Well, you can read through the entire first chapter of Hebrews, and we don't know the name of the Son. It's not mentioned. All we know is that God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. We come into chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to all the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And it goes down. And, and you go all the way down through uh, verse 8, and you have no mention about who this Son is. Now, in verse um, 6, we are told this, <coughs> but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou, art, thou visitest him? 
that thou made him, the Son of Man, a little lower than the angels. Verse 8, that put all things in subjection under his feet, the Son. So up to this point, there's no mention of who the Son is. But what it has done in the first um, 14 verses of chapter 1 and the first 8 verses of chapter 2, 22 verses, it gives Old Testament prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And then verse 9 says this. But we see Jesus. And that's why I put this in here. It's a primer for Jewish evangelism. <coughs> in Hebrews chapter 1, we're introduced to the Son, whom God has spoken through in the last days. This one is the Messiah. Many prophecies are given in the first chapter to establish that the Son is the Messiah as well as God. No mention is made of the identity of this one until chapter 2, verse 9, when it is said, but we see Jesus. And, and, the, and the best way to get a Jewish person to accept the Lord, to believe in Jesus, is, is to go to the Old Testament prophecies and let them read them. Uh, and, and you don't have to identify for them who it's speaking of. Probably more Jewish people have accepted Jesus as the Messiah through just reading Isaiah 53 than any other passage in the Word of God. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up as, as a tender plant uh, out of a dry ground. And then it goes on, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, uh, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we, we are healed. And, and all you have to do is, is let, just, would you read this chapter? And, and tell me, who is this speaking of? And, and most Jewish people are, are cognizant, aware enough of Jesus and what he did, that when they read that chapter, they're going to, at one point, they don't even have to get to the end. They're going to say, well, that's, that's they're going to say it in a, in a number of different ways. Well, well, that's the New Testament because it's speaking of Jesus. Well, you just have to let them know, no, it's not the Old Testament, the New Testament. Isaiah 53 was written 700 years or so before the time of Jesus <clears throat> by the prophet Isaiah. The Hebrew prophet is the Jewish Bible. And, and that, in essence, is what uh, Hebrews does because... Remember, who is he addressing this to? Jewish people. Some of them are true believers, encouraging them. But some of them are just professors. They aren't, they aren't really saved, and there's a lot of pressure on them through, by their family, by the religious system, their culture, to go back to what they were practicing. And in a sense, it was more difficult back then than it is even today. Because the temple was given by God. The sacrifices were prescribed by God. And all of that stuff that they were doing, by and large, were prescribed by God to do. So they would be going back to Mosaism. Today, for a Jewish person to come to the Lord, it's more of a uh, of a cultural thing in the sense of Christians have persecuted me and, and, and I don't want to be part of 
the people that persecuted me, that type of thing is a big problem. Uh, but there's a lot of pressure as well because believing in Jesus is just not done by Jewish people. And the biggest struggle I had was about a month, six weeks maybe, uh, into my uh, uh, believing life where I was just inundated with doubts. You know, why am I believing in Jesus? I'm not Gentile. You know, this is the Christian God. I'm Jewish. And, and, and I really struggled with that. And, and for a month I struggled with that. And I got into the Word of God. And, uh, and the Word of God ultimately uh, showed me that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the God of Israel. And what you're doing is following what the God of Israel wants you to follow, which is believing in his son, the Messiah. And it's through those promises, those prophecies, that convince me. Well, that's what Hebrews chapter 1 is doing. And uh, so it's a primary in Jewish evangelism, as it were. Now, the warning passages, we're not going to look at the warning passages until we get to them. First one in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 10, uh, and chapter 12. Five warning passages. Now, Kent Hughes says this. The view many, including myself, hold is that those who fall away are not true believers, yet, but rather men and women who only appear so. They are people who have received a thorough exposure to the gospel. For example, the catechized Jewish believers of the preceding verses <coughs> and have made an, an ostensible profession of faith and have been received into the fellowship of God's people. However, at a later point, they have abandoned their profession, even becoming opponents of Christ. So keep that in mind as we go through Hebrews, that you have these two groups. And so this is very applicable to our world today. Uh, Jesus had said that um, in the church would grow up wheat and tares together. Now they look very similar. One is good, the other is just good to be burned. And he says, don't separate those until, try to, I'll do that when I come. And the reason being, because they look oftentimes so close that you can hardly tell the difference. You know, uh, perhaps you will get rid of a wheat along with a tear, or keep the tear and get rid of the wheat or whatever the case might be. So it's a warning to wheats and tares as it were, to saved and unsaved. But these are professing people. Every church, every Bible-believing church, unless it's you and your wife, and then you may not be sure about your spouse. Maybe you're not sure about yourself either, I guess. But anyway, uh, every Bible-believing church will have unsaved people in it. I guarantee you. Uh, the larger the church, the more unsaved people. You know, I attend a church that has some um, 3,600 people that go to it, roughly, somewhere in that neighborhood. I have no idea how many of those are lost. I know a bunch of them are, and they are professing Christians. 
they can probably answer the questions. They can probably um, put on a good show. That's what Hebrews is addressing. Possessing versus professing. So it becomes very applicable for today as well, even though he's addressing the Jewish world and their concern about going back. So you have these warning passages. And you can see, for example, in chapter 4, <coughs> in verses 1 and 2, the, the, the difference. Look what it says in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 4. Let us therefore fear, left a, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Then verse 2 especially. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. There's the two groups. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. See, one is saved by grace through faith. You have us and them. Both groups heard the word of God. Both groups heard the gospel. Both groups heard about the Messiah. Each group intellectually accepted what was being taught. But only one group mixed that factual understanding, that belief, by putting their faith in the Messiah. The other group gave intellectual assent to it, but they didn't mix faith with it. They didn't trust the Lord for their salvation. Us and them. And that's why you have the warning passages. Uh, warning them who are primarily the ones in danger of falling back, going back to Judaism, don't do it. And the reason why Jesus is so much better than anything that the old economy had to offer. Jesus is superior than angels and Moses and the priesthood and the uh, high priest and, and all of this stuff that we're going to look at. So don't go back. Come forward. Okay, any questions at this point before we go on to the next page? Okay, now we're going to pick it up in the first chapter, verses 1 through 3. Now, some background. The verses themselves are on the back of this page. <coughs> so if you want to turn back there, we can read it initially. The first three verses, Hebrews 1. God, who at sundry times and in, in different ways, diverse manners, spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, <coughs> had in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he had appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, go back to the other side. We need some background before we get into these first three verses outside of the background of the whole book that we looked at. The Hebrew word Mashiach, translated anointed, 
Mashiach is the same word or is the Hebrew word for the English word Messiah or Christ. Same thing. <coughs> but it's, excuse me, it's used as a noun 39 times in the Old Testament. It's used as a verb as well, but it's used 39 times, Mashiach, as a noun in the Old Testament. As many as 12 times. Walter Kaiser Jr. sees nine uses speaking of the person of the Messiah. Michael Redelnik sees 12 uses. He sees an additional 12. But these, as many as 12 times, Mashiach is used referring to the future Messiah. And they're all listed here in that parenthesis, although they're also listed below. The word Messiah is defined by W.H. Rose as, quote, a future royal figure sent by God who will bring salvation to God's people and the world and establish a kingdom characterized by features such as peace and justice. That originally came from the Dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch, uh, Alexander and Baker, the editor. Now, there are a lot of other terms that refer to the person of the Messiah in the what we call the Old Testament. Servant, you know, the servant passages of Isaiah. Uh, the rock, the rock of Israel. The God is our rock. Um, the prince of peace. And there's many, many other terms um, that we could mention that also speak of the, of, of the person of the Messiah. But the actual term, Mashiach, 39 times, Perhaps as many as 12 times it's speaking of the future Messiah. Now, I think it's a little bit questionable. I think certainly we can narrow it down where unquestionably two of those 12 times it speaks of the um, future Messiah. Now, I put down all the verses. Uh, the ones that Redelnik adds to Kaiser's list of nine, I put Redelnik's name under it. 2 Samuel 22, 51, 2 Samuel 23, 1, and Psalm 89, 51. Now, 1 Samuel 2, 10 says this. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king, and the exalt the horn of his Mashiach is anointed. Now that very possibly could be speaking of the future Messiah. 1 Samuel 2.35 says this, And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever, my Mashiach forever. So God's going to raise up a faithful priest and build a house for him. That would be the temple uh, and would walk before the anointed of God, the Mashiach, the Messiah, forever. Perhaps that's speaking of the future coming king, Messiah. Redelnik then says 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty-one should be in this list as well. He is the tower of salvation for his king and shows mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forevermore. 
Now, the argument that uh, could be made is that the anointed, and we're going to look that kings were anointed, by the way. There are three groups in Old Testament Israel that were anointed. One of them was kings. So is this speaking of the future messianic king, or is the anointed here David? Bredelnik thinks it's the future messianic king. Kaiser does not. He thinks it's David. You can determine yourself which is correct. Bredelnik thinks the same thing with 2 Samuel 23.1. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, the man who was raised, uh, should take away one of those raised, raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said. Well, the anointed of the God of Jacob. I would agree personally with Kaiser that it seems like the anointed one here is David. But Riddelnik says it's the future king, the Messiah. Psalm 2.2 is certainly speaking of the ultimate future king. The kings of the earth set themselves and his rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his Messiah, his anointed, his Mashiach. Psalm 20, verse 6, now know I that the, now know I that, uh, now, now know I that the Lord saves his anointed. He will hear from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. God delivers, God saves his Messiah, his uh, Mashiach, his anointed. And again, both would say, both Redelnik and Kaiser, that this is speaking of the future king. <clears throat> I, I'm not sure the case is as, as cut dry with many of these as, as they are. Psalm 28.8, the Lord is their strength. He is the stra saving strength of his anointed, of his... See, it could be, is, uh, yes, it's Mashiach, Messiah, but uh, the anointed, depending on the context of the passage, could well be the priest, could be, well be the king, could well be a prophet. In, in 84.9, Behold our God, our shield, and look upon the face of your, of thine anointed, thine Mashiach. So they would say that is also, they believe, speaking of the future king. Psalm 89.51 Redelnik believes this should be added to the list. <clears throat> wherefore thine enemies have reproached, O Lord, where they, wherefore they have reproached the footsteps of the Messiah, the footsteps of your anointed, the footsteps of the Mashiach. Now, Redelnik says that this should be understood as the future king, the Messiah. Habakkuk 3.13 uh, thou, went thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with your anointed, thine anointed, Mashiach. Thou woundest the head out of the halves of the wicked by discovering the foundation onto the neck, Selah. So perhaps this is speaking of the Messiah. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation through the Messiah, through the anointed one, through the, through the messianic king, we know that's true, who would wound the head out of the house of the wicked. If this is speaking of the Messiah, who would come forth to save Israel, who is the head of the house of the wicked? The Antichrist, or even beyond that, Satan. 
Remember the uh, Genesis 3.15 and that first messianic prophecy when the, the woman and the seed, of the, the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your heel, but thou will wound his head, crush his head. A deadly, it ties in. So that very well could be messianic. And certainly going back to Genesis 3.15, uh, where the where the head of the house of the of the enemies, um, speaking uh, of the wicked, that's got to be Satan would be wounded up with a head uh, head wound. He'd wound the head out of the house of the wicked, and it, it could be a, a, a double play on words there, a head wound, but he's also the head of the house of the wicked. Daniel 9, 25 and 26, twice it's used here, once in each verse. This is certainly messianic, speaking of Jesus. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed, the prince shall be seven weeks. Verse 26, and after three score and two weeks shall Mashiach, Messiah, be cut off, but not for himself. So this is certainly speaking of Jesus, the Mashiach there. Now, what I put down, there are two passages that are the best to use when showing a Jewish person that Jesus is Messiah. If you want to show them Messiah in the Old, Old Testament. All, the other ten of these may or may not speak of Messiah, the future king. Certainly Psalm 2 does, and Daniel 9, 25 and 26. So there's three verses, three passages, if you will, out of the twelve. When you use Psalm 2, verse 2, which is up here, you should couple it at a minimum with verses 6 and 7 and 10 through 12 of Psalm 2. Ultimately, in, in verse 10, it says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and, when you, and you perish from the way. So you should couple it there. And, and Daniel 9, 25 and 26 is giving the timing of the coming of the Messiah. So, so Messiah is used maybe as many as 12 times Certainly three times in Daniel 9, um, and then also twice in Daniel 9, 25, and once in Psalm 2. Now, we're not going to look at these verses. The Hebrew verb, mashach, to smear it to anoint. You have a priest, a prophet, and a king. And when they were put into office, they were smeared or poured uh, oil upon. That put them in their office a prophet, a priest, and a king. They were anointed into their office. They were pouring oil, smeared with oil on them. Now, the noun itself is used for four different entities outside of the Messiah himself in the Bible. Of a priest, Leviticus 4.3. Of a prophet, Psalm 105, verse 15. And a king, 1 Samuel 12.3. And then it's also used of Cyrus, the ruler of Persia, in, in Isaiah 45.1. So the verb and the noun are used of these three offices in the Old Testament economy. Prophet, priest, and king. Now, the Jewish people of the first century would have been well aware of that. They would have understood the term Mashiach. They would have understood the offices in Israel. There were priests at Jesus' day. There was no king at that point. 
There were prophets at that day. Uh, John the Baptist was a prophet, but they were very, very familiar with the offices. Now, turn your page over. The priest represented man before holy God. So if you want to think of it this way, a priest would have his back to the people and his face would be towards God because he would be representing the people before God. The prophet, the exact opposite. His back would be to God. His face would be to the people because he was God's spokesman to the people. Thus saith the Lord. So the priest represented the people to God. The prophet represented God to the people. God's spokesman. The king was God's appointed ruler. Nobody chose to be king in Israel. It's God's appointed ruler. Line of Judah and all of that. So you couldn't choose to be the king uh, just because you wanted to be the king. No Donald Trumps in those days or whomever it might be at that case. Priest, prophet, king. Now, this is important as we look at the first three verses. It's a book to Jewish people. What the writer is doing is trying to impress upon the readers of this book, Jewish people, in the context of when it's written, whether they're possessing believers in Jesus or professing, they just give lip service that Jesus is Messiah, <coughs> that the one that you've got to reckon with and understand is the Mashiach, is the Messiah. In verse 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past out of the fathers by the prophets. See, when God in the times past would speak unto the people, he would use a prophet. Look at verse 2, the first part of it had in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. The Son is the ultimate prophet, the anointed one, the one that God has spoken through in these last days to all humanity. Jesus is the prophet. Now, there's so many ways we could go on this. Um, <coughs> in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, remember, Moses wrote that, and he said, uh, Behold, the days coming are coming that I'm going to raise up a prophet greater. He's going to be like unto me. God's going to raise him up from your brethren, from you. He's going to be like unto me, but he's greater than me. There's going to be a greater than Moses that's going to come. Him you need to hearken to. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. That's what this is speaking about. Jesus is the prophet. He is God's spokesman to the world, ultimately, but to the Jewish people. Verse 2. The Son is God's king. And again, nowhere is Jesus mentioned here. <coughs> Look at the last part of verse 2. Whom he had appointed heir of all things, 
by whom also he made the worlds. The Son is the heir of all things. If you are the heir of all things, you are then what? In charge. You're the ruler. You're the king. So the Son is not only the prophet, but God has made him the king, the one in charge. He gets everything. So the Son is the prophet. The Son is the king. And then in verse 3 it says this, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, and it's the last part of this verse right now that I want to look at. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I remember one time talking to, uh, you know, have you ever heard of Catholic Answers? They're actually located, headquartered, at least they were many years ago. They still may be. Uh, in San Diego, where we lived for many years. Uh, Catholic Answers were staffed, run by uh, professors <laughs> in Jesus. Um, most of them uh, were former Presbyterians, uh, but other Christian uh, denominations who had made a profession of faith. They would call themselves perhaps evangelicals, but came to the realization one day that evangelical or Protestantism, if you want to use that term, and I hate to use either of those terms because those are broad umbrellas, but just for discussion's sake, that Protestantism is wrong and that the Catholic Church Catholicism is right. And so they abandoned their, 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 their Protestant faith most, many of them are, were, were Presbyterians, some were other denominations, and, and they, re, they, they repented of that, and they became practicing Catholics and bought into the whole smorgasbord of Catholic belief. The exaltation of Mary, she's our intercessor, mediatrix, um, yada, 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 yada. Well, it's Catholic answers, and, and they would oftentimes, they would love to debate especially Catholics who had come to faith, theoretically come to faith, and they would try to rescue them out of that. Well, I, I had a number of contacts with them uh, through our time in San Diego. <clears throat> Al Potter, some of you know Al Potter was the pastor. Um, I don't remember who set it up. It may have been, I may have set it up. I don't remember. It matters not who set it up, but I remember Al uh, debated one of these guys from Catholic Answers, and there was about 40 or 50 of us in the room, and uh, I was chomping at the bit. I wanted to be up there, but anyway, I had to sit back there nice and kind and polite and all of that. <coughs> anyway, um, this one guy I talked to one time outside of this debate that Al was the point man on, as you were, for the biblical side. Now, if you know Al Potter, he's He's no dummy, uh, and he knows this stuff. But anyway, uh, one of these guys one time was trying to convince me of purgatory. Because if you become a Catholic, you've got to believe in purgatory. That's a doctrine of Catholicism. 
And then ultimately you go and you spend however many years in purgatory. So your venial sins can be um, uh, burned off. Uh, And uh, before you go into heaven, you know, if you've got mortal sins, you're in bad shape. But anyway, um, actually, according to the Bible, every sin is a mortal sin. <laughs> but anyway, that's a whole other discussion. So, uh, so I said, you know what? You know, I do believe in purgatory. And I said, you know, I, I, I went really close to there one year. It's, it's, it's a town in, in Colorado, Purgatory, Colorado. Um, I did say that to him. But um, there is a Purgatory, Colorado. But I said, I believe the Bible talks about purgatory, if you will, but not the way you think. And I, and I had him, we turned to Hebrews chapter 1, the end of verse 3. When he, the son, who, who, who do we know ultimately is the son? Jesus. When Jesus, when the son had by himself purged, that's purgatory, had by himself purged our sins. See, we don't purge any of our own sins by going to purgatory. Jesus, by himself, got rid of all of our sins. There is no place called purgatory outside of Colorado. Uh, You know, there's no um, intermediary place between uh, your death and heaven that you go to where your sins have to be paid for uh, because, thankfully, Jesus paid it all. He did it all. So he didn't know what to say when I turned here. Um, he didn't change his belief. I'm hoping later on he did. But, um, but when he had by himself purged our sins. You know, in, in the Old Testament economy, one of the things that was taught over and over and over and over again was you have a sin problem. And you need to bring a sacrifice and a blood offering to God that your sins can be forgiven. Now, even in the Old Testament, it wasn't the sacrifice itself that forgave sins. It was the Messiah who did that, the Lord himself. But they would have understood about sacrifice. And what this is talking about when uh, he had himself purged our sins, he's the priest. See, when you would go in the Old Testament to the temple or previously to the tabernacle, you wouldn't kill that animal yourself. Who would you give it to? The priest. He would mediate for you and he would bring that animal and he would sacrifice that animal in your stead and he would, in a sense, stay in your, uh, stand in your place representing you before God. But Jesus, and we're going to get into the priesthood, Jesus is so much superior to the Old Testament priest. He purged our sins alone himself the last phrase of this would have resonated with the readers as well the temple was standing they understood the priesthood they understood what would take place and it says this sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high the phrase itself he sat down is a phrase of finality If you would look at the furniture in the tabernacle, there is no seats. You would look at the furniture in the temple, which was patterned after the tabernacle. 
you had a lampstand, you had an altar of incense, you had uh, the table of showbread, and the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was not a seat where the presence of God was. The priest never sat down in the Old Testament economy. When he was finished with his job for the day, he would go outside of the temple or the tabernacle. He could relax. He could rest. He could sit down. But when he was serving God, he was constantly standing, always working, offering sacrifices. So when the, when the statement is made, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. It speaks of finality. It, it is an extremely strong statement that what Jesus did finished it. It's completed. It's done. His dying for your sin accomplished that. No more sacrifices needed. Now, when we get into chapter 10 and we get into that chapter uh, 9 and 10 deal with sacrifices, and especially the, the, the most important of all sacrifices that would be made, the uh, Day of Atonement sacrifice. But we get into chapter 10, um, and again it'll say there, he sat down. But it'll say over and over and over and over again, he died once, he died once, he died once, he died once. In contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices that were done how often? All the time. If it's the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, once a year, every year, ongoing. But they had monthly sacrifice, they had, they, it was a regular process. <coughs> so this is a, this is a, um, it's a statement of finality, that it's done. It's over. Now, so what do you have in these three verses? <coughs> Excuse me. Hebrews starts in these three verses presenting the Son as the promised anointed one of Israel. <coughs> See, in the Old Testament, officially, you could only have one office. You might function in another capacity, but you were not officially in that capacity. David, for example, officially was in what office? King. But did he act as a prophet on occasions in the sense that he spoke for God? Well, yeah. But he wasn't a prophet, he was a king. Remember, it was Uzziah, who uh, the king of Israel, <coughs> who wanted to act as a priest and he went into the, uh, the temple acting as a priest. What happened to him? Leprosy. God struck him immediately. Hey, you're a king. You don't act as a priest. Priests are anointed and they have, priests aren't kings. Kings aren't priests. And, and you see this type of thing all over the, you know, many times in, in the uh, Word of God, number of times, anyway. <coughs> but what it's saying here is the Son is the prophet, the king, the priest, the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah. God's ultimate prophet, God's ultimate king, God's ultimate 
priest, the high priest that we'll later find after the order of Melchizedek. He is the anointed one. And, and that's why, go back to Zechariah very briefly, um, chapter 6. And I know we've looked at this before. Some of you perhaps weren't here when we looked at it. So Zechariah chapter 6. Starting in verse 12, 12 and 13. <coughs> and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man. Stop there for a second. Remember who said, Behold the man? Pilate. Behold the man. Used in John. Pardon? So, yeah, in John. But here it says, behold the man whose name is the branch. That's another term for the Messiah, the branch. He shall grow up out of his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Well, generally, you didn't have a priest sitting on a throne. But with the ultimate, with the branch, with behold the man who is the branch, he will be a priest sitting on a throne, and the council of peace will be between them both. To have spiritual, pe priest, spiritual peace, the priest would operate in that realm. Forgiveness of sins. To have physical peace... Protection from your enemies, in other words. The king operated in that realm. And when they served God as they should, God promised Israel that you will have safety from your enemies if your king is righteous. And your priest, if he is doing what's right, you will have an offering made in forgiveness of sins. The council of peace will be between them both. The priest sitting on the throne in both offices. The office of priest, the office of king will meet together. <clears throat> and ultimately in this one individual, you will have not only peace with God, but peace in the world. That's Jesus. That's in a sense what Hebrews chapter 1 is saying, but it also adds in here the prophet. And so the first three verses... Very Jewish book. As he speaks to them, he says, the son is the Messiah. The son is the prophet, the priest, and the king. The son of God is the anointed one, the Mashiach, that promised king. And uh, as well, he is deity. Now, we know from a number of verses that he's God. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6 tells us that for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We know it from Micah 5, 2, where his goings forth, this one born in Bethlehem, his goings forth have been from eternity past. Who is the only one from eternity past? God. And yet he's born in Bethlehem. Jesus. 
But look at the terminology here. Look in, um, oh, where do we want to, um, by whom also he made the worlds. Look at the end of verse 2. The Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom the Son also he made the world. Jesus is creator. Colossians chapter 1, I didn't put that verse down here. If you want to turn to Colossians chapter 1, we'll be in chapter 2 uh, eventually and others, but Colossians chapter 1, in verses 15 and 16, <coughs> who, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, we're going to look at that shortly, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, if that doesn't establish the deity of Christ, the deity of Jesus, you know, you're a hopeless case. Um, so, now, and, and don't get hung up on the, he's the firstborn of every creature. Jehovah Witnesses get hung up on this verse. See, he's born. And he's the firstborn uh, of, of every uh, creature. Um, look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Was Jesus the first one to come back from the dead? No. There are numbers of people in the uh, earlier scriptures that came back. From, how, about, how about Lazarus? Did Lazarus come back from the dead? Yeah. So Jesus was not the first to come back from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn is the word in the Greek that literally means the uh, preeminent one. Who is the most important one that came back from the dead? Jesus. When you go back to verse uh, 16, um, uh, I'm sorry, not verse 15, who is the image of the invisible? The, the most important of every creature. Was Jesus born into the world as a man? Yes. He is the preeminent of all of God's creatures. He's the preeminent one. He's not the firstborn. I mean, were people born before Jesus was born? Just a few. Maybe, uh, I don't know, 10 billion. Just a few. He wasn't the firstborn, but was he the most important one? The preeminent one. That's the word in the Greek. He, God used, he created the whole world. He's, he's got to be God. But then look also at uh, verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory. The sun is the brightness of the glory of the Lord. The brightness of the glory of God. Now, that, he's not a reflector of God's light. He's the source of that light. There's a big difference. The moon reflects the sun. Jesus is not the moon. 
Jesus is the Son. Now, play on words there, I guess. You know, S-U-N, S-O-N. He is the source of the light. He's not a reflector of the light. <coughs> um, Samuel Riddow put it this way <coughs> in his lectures on Hebrews. He said, all that God is, not merely in his ways, but in his being, is expressed absolutely by the Son. No one has grasped what the Son of God is until he has prostrated his soul before him. God overall, blessed forever. In other words, until you, you're truly born again, truly saved, you can never understand who Jesus really is. If you say you're saved and deny the deity of the Messiah, the deity of Jesus, you know what that tells me? You're not saved. <clears throat> Ridout goes on. I would that I could put it so strongly that every soul would bow to the truth of it. The absolutely essential, perfect divinity of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We admit not one iota of a question, not one shadow of a doubt, not one bit of tarnish upon that glory which God has spread before us on this page. Well said. Wipe away any doubt, wipe away any question, don't let any tarnish come on that belief and thought that Jesus is God. He is the express image of God. He's the brightness of his glory. The express image of his person, as it says in verse 3, comes from the Greek word uh, character. Literally, it means, uh, this Greek word, the instrument used for engraving or carving. <coughs> and the mark <coughs> stamped upon that instrument, wrought out on it, a mark or figure burned in, Leviticus 13, 28, or stamped on an impression, the exact expression, the image of any person or thing, marked likeness, precise reproduction in every aspect, effect, simulate. In other words, the Son of God is everything God would be in substance if God took on human form. So if you, if you wonder, what would God be like if he became a man? Jesus. You don't have to wonder. That's what this is saying. Where he is the express image of his person. As Colossians 2, 9 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. John MacArthur put it this way. Exact representation translates the Greek term used for the impression made by a die or stamp on a seal. Design on the eyed is reproduced on the wax. Jesus Christ is the reproduction of God. He is the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. Colossians 1.15 gives a similar illustration of this incomprehensible truth. <coughs> he is the image of the invisible God. The word image here is icon, from which we get icon. Icon means a precise copy, an exact reproduction, as in a fine sculpture or portrait. 
To call Christ the, uh, the echion of God means he is the exact reproduction of God. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. When it says he's the express image of his person, he is very God. If God who is spirit would, be, would take on human form, what you would get and what we got was Jesus. God would live exactly as Jesus lived, do exactly what Jesus did, speak exactly as Jesus spoke. 100%. That's what I'm saying. Because Jesus is God, is what it's saying. And then, the fourth point, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says, And he, Jesus, is before all things. <coughs> and by him, all things consist. We breathe, we move, we live because of Jesus. He is very God himself. And so in, in, in four phrases, he made the worlds, he is the brightness of his glory, he is the actual source of light, he is God himself, he's the express image of God, and he holds all things together. In these four phrases, the writer of Hebrews is communicating that the one who is the prophet, the priest, the king, the son, is very God himself. That's the introduction to this book. And that's why as we go on, and we'll ultimately in chapter 2, verse 9, find out who is the son, but we see Jesus. But before we get to that point, starting with verse 4, we are going to get many, many prophecies of the Messiah. And chapter 1, <clears throat> using these uh, prophecies from the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, is probably one of the strongest portions of the Word of God showing that Jesus is God. Especially when you couple it with what has been said in verses 2 and 3. So the introduction is, God spoke in the past by his prophets, but now in the last days by his son, who is the king and who is also the priest, and finished the sacrifice he sat down. He is the anointed of God, who is very God himself. Why would you want to go back to Judaism? Why would you want to go back to Mosaism? Why would you want to go back to Catholicism? Why would you want to go back into the world? There's nothing there. I mean, this is... The language used here is so powerful and so strong. Memorize it, learn it, internalize it. Uh, Jesus is God. There is nothing else for us, is what he's saying. So don't go back. Go forward. Don't regress. Progress. Go forward is what this book is about in your service of God. Don't go back because you're rejecting the God of the universe, the Savior of the world, if you do. That's the introduction. 
Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.